Amen. Take your copy of God's Word this morning, if you will, and turn again to that first book in your Bible, the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. I mentioned it last week. I'll say it again. How blessed we are to know that wherever we come from, no matter what our background, no matter who we are, God has a purpose for us, God has a plan for us, and God can use us. It is an amazing reality that we can live with each day. It should give us confidence. It should give us a sense of assurance as we serve him. Look, when you look at this passage, when you look at the life of Joseph, and remember we entered into that life just in the last week or so. As you enter into it, you are reminded that he did not come to the perfect family. He did not come from perfect family. And just like those of us in this room, all of us are imperfect individuals. And yes, as much as we love our family, they are imperfect. Make sure you edit that out before my mom and dad hear it, okay? Make sure. But they're imperfect. We're all coming from imperfect places. And when you look at Joseph's family, you find a dysfunctional family. Actually, they put the dis in the dysfunctional. There is no doubt that when you look at their lives, it is, a, it is a life of chaos, of strife, and envy. And yet God has a plan. But in that plan, there may be ups and downs. I mean, I look at Joseph's life, and I see tremendous victories, tremendous ups, and I see tremendous lows, tremendous apparent defeats. Again, I love that because our lives mirror that so often. Because we can be so up and we can be so down. We can have great victories in life and yet we can have some of the greatest defeats. And yet again, God uses those lives. And he uses those moments of ups and the moments of downs to somehow work together all things for our good and his glory. Look, if you will, again, Genesis chapter 37. Let's focus on verse 25. And let me give you the background where we are, okay? You'll remember that the brothers of Joseph have finally had enough with the dreamer. They've had enough with his, of his ambition. They've had enough of his favor. And now they have decided to end his life. Well, one of the brothers, Reuben, the oldest, stepped in to basically say, hey, let's not kill him. Just throw him in this pit. Throw him in this cistern. Throw him in there for just, just a while till we figure out what is going on. They throw him into the cistern. And notice in verse 25, it said they sat down to eat a meal. I mentioned how callous that is. I mean, to know that your brother is in a pit, he's in this cistern, and all you do is just sit down and begin to enjoy a meal. The Jewish writings actually saw the irony in this, of how the brothers were sitting and eating, feasting, if you will, while Joseph had nothing. And it would just be some years later where Joseph would not only feed his brothers, but he would feed the entire world because of God's plan, because of God's provision. But continue to look. It says that they lifted their eyes and then they saw, they, they saw this caravan. There was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. And so Judah said to his brothers, 
What profit is there if we will kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. That sounds so merciful, doesn't it? Maybe it sounds like some of your siblings. Let's not kill him. Let's make money off of him. I mean, that's gracious. That's merciful. Said, let's find a better prophet for our brother. Now, understand in the book of Genesis, you constantly have this, this sibling rivalry. You have these brothers who are back and forth. Even if you were to go back to the very beginning, remember the first brothers, right? We have the stage set for us that Cain and Abel end up having this type of rivalry that ends up leading Cain to kill his brother Abel. So in the very beginning, you saw that happening. And you see that context throughout Genesis. You see that consistency. You see it continue. That there's this back and forth. And the brothers here that are filled with envy and filled with hate, they have cast him into the pit, and now they are willing to sell him. To the Ishmaelites. Oh, the Ishmaelites. Look at that study of Genesis. Note those individuals. Because they basically are the cousins of the family of Jacob. If you go back and look at the family tree, remember Abraham had Isaac and Ishmael. Remember those two? And certainly the hostility that developed there and even the hostility that we still see today because of that brother's rivalry. The Ishmaelites. The cousins, those also referred to as Midianites, who had become the enemy of Israel. They look and said, let's just sell them. Sell him to the Ishmaelites. Sell him to our cousin. Now, I just want to point out something. And really, I've only got one, one real principle to give you today, okay? One truth. And that is, oh, some of you just got happy about that. So you looked at your wife. I saw you. You think I can't see you from up here, right? I can even see you in the gathering. You don't think I can, but I can see you somehow. This is the one truth I want you to hear this morning. You may be down, but you never forget this. God still has a plan for you. You may be down, but God still has a plan. Oh, Joseph is down. He's in the pit, and now he faces slavery in Egypt. He's in the pit, wondering. And, the, and actually, the scripture later on will tell you that he is begging for his life, that he is crying out to his brothers. He is finding no favor from them except the possibility that he will face the rest of his life in servitude. That's it. So from the pit to the road to Egypt... He is facing the difficulties. And note, I could make the case that none of this is deserved in Joseph's life. Now, I know some of you look at me and say, okay, Reggie, we are all sinners and we deserve everything that we get here on this earth. I, theologically, I know some of you are great scholars and all of that. Theologically, I understand we're sinners. We live in a sinful world. We, I, I got all that. But can you get past that with me for just a moment? Tell me specifically what Joseph did to deserve 
being treated this way by his brothers, being put in a pit, and now being sold into slavery. I know some of you will email me later and you will tell me. There's basically nothing you find in Scripture. Yes, he probably should have kept some of his dreams to himself. Divine revelation, God was speaking to him, obviously true, but he might would have, should have kept some of his thoughts to himself, some of his dreams, maybe. But that did not warrant him being thrown into the pit. That did not dictate that he should have been sold into slavery. The brother's envy and hostility... The brother's attitude was at the heart of their motivation and at the heart of this action. So let me just back up and say this. Sometimes you may be down and it's because of other people, what they've done and what they've said. You may not feel like that you deserved to be in the pit. You, not, you may not feel like you deserve to be on the road to Egypt. And you may be just down. That is the reality of the world we live in. We do live in a fallen world, a broken world, where attitudes are wrong, where actions can be evil. We live in that world. And there are times that things will happen to us and we'll say to ourselves, we didn't deserve that. And I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to come to you and try to give you all the... the I'm just going to say there are times that we feel like we don't deserve this. We've tried to do what was right. We've tried to do the things that we were supposed to do. And it just seems like those things keep coming at us. Those negative things. Those difficulties. Oh, you'll see it in Joseph's life, won't you? I mean, some of you know his life. I mean, you'll see as we talk about in a couple weeks his integrity and how he keeps his integrity that he will demonstrate integrity in his life, and yet he will continue to see accusations. He'll continue to see people come at him because, again, we live in a broken, messy, fallen world. Every day we're reminded of that. And we may get down because we're in the pit. We may get down because we find ourselves on the road to Egypt. L look at the depravity of this. I mean, I mean, look at the depravity of the scripture. A as you read through it, the depravity of the narrative itself and how it is given to us. Verse 28. The Midianite, again, another word for Ishmaelite traders, passed by. And the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekel shekels of silver. They sold him for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. We're going to get back to that in a moment. But look at verse 29. Reuben returned to the pit. Indeed, Joseph was not in the pit. And he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. And then they sent the tunic of many colors. They brought it to their father and said, We have found this. 
Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? I say note the depravity of this. The brothers, they sell Joseph into slavery. And they say, we got this good idea. We've ripped this garment off of him, this coat of many colors, this variegated ornamental garment. We've ripped it off of him. You know what we can do? We can cover this up by killing a goat, killing a baby goat, and dipping it, dipping this vestiture into that blood and giving it to dad. How depraved is that? How depraved? And I, I've tried to look at scripture. There's a lot of ambiguity here as far as the way this was done. Uh, verse 32, one of the verbs that's used there actually says they sent it to him. Which has made some people believe that the original Hebrew as it, as it talked about sin is that they were not only evil, but they were also cowards. That they sent it on ahead to show their dad. But in any case... They bring it to their dad. And they speak to the death of Joseph. Oh, I'm all into like foreshadowing and the things that I see in Scripture, the way it harkens back sometimes to other passages. Do you remember with me when Jacob went before his dad to deceive his dad? You remember he, he was getting the blessing of Esau? And what, what did they do then? Do you remember? You remember just a little bit? I'm telling you, the message goes so much more quickly if you just kind of nod your head, just act like you're with me. I mean, I just move on. Boom, boom, boom. Jacob decided he would deceive. With the help of his mother, he would deceive his dad. He would get the blessing of Esau. And what did he do? He went and basically they killed a baby goat so that his mother could prepare this stew for his dad. And what he did is he took the skins and he put them on his arms so that when Isaac reached out to touch him, he would be as Esau. Because remember, Jacob was a smooth kind of guy, the scripture says. And he had to somehow betray his father, deceive him. Do you see now how it's all kind of coming back around? But I would say even with it coming back around, it's hard to see how even Jacob deserves this. How difficult to know the processes to know the hurt and the pain that he is going through. The scripture says in verse 33, and he recognized it and said, it's my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph has torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. To all his sons and his daughters, they, they all arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. And thus his father wept for him. 
Let me tell you what. It gets about as low for the family as you find it. Gets about as low for Joseph as you could think. Really for the entire family. And then verse 36 says, The Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. So not only has he experienced the pit, not only has he been sold and experienced the road to Egypt, now he experiences slavery in the house of Potiphar. Well, first of all, he just experiences a different culture, right? Egypt is so much different, so much different than Canaan. We can tell even later on in the history of Egypt, it's so much different than the land in which he had come. Swindoll says that he was sold into a culture in a country that he did not understand and also that he experienced a language that he could not comprehend. It kind of feels like a Mississippi boy moving to South Louisiana, all right? When I moved down to South Louisiana and had the South Louisiana influence for just a little while, I was like, whoa. They eat things that are different from us. Or at least those of us from North Mississippi. Hey, kind of, they eat crawfish, which is awesome, by the way. I never did know it, but I had to get to, I didn't know how to break those things apart. I didn't know how to eat those things properly. We fish with those things up in Tupelo, Mississippi. You know what I'm talking about? That's the only time really I noticed was an, an artificial crawfish or so that I put on my, on, on my rod and reel. That, that was about it. My dad still doesn't understand. He used to call me when I was down there because, I mean, I don't know if you realize this, but I enjoy food. Like, man, I love it. I know I talk about it so often. A youth stopped me the other day and said, hey, it's been like three Sundays since you talked about food. I said, really? <laughs> Going to have to remedy that. Dr. Barnes down in Zachary used to, he used to say, I don't think I had to beg for food like you do today. You know, like <laughs> I told him times are changing. People are changing. I love food. And I got to loving the food down in South Louisiana. And, and I, started, I started eating, like, like I said, crawfish and really shrimp and, and oysters and even, even raw oysters and those kinds. I mean, I was just starting to eat everything that I could find. And I was enjoying the food in South Louisiana. My dad just couldn't comprehend that. You know, for us in North Mississippi, seafood was fried catfish. I mean, that was it. That's kind of how we looked at it. I remember my dad calling me up one day, and I'd been out eating. I'd been telling him about the different things I was trying or so, and he called me up one day, and he said, hey, uh, he said, what have you eaten that's crawled out of the ocean today? I said, what? He said, well, I mean, whatever crawls out, you just eat, obviously, you know, that down there where you are. And so, you know, it's just different culture and food. I mean, for, for Joseph, he's going down and all of a sudden he walks into the restaurant and all these people have onion breath. You know what I'm talking about? Go read Exodus. They will complain that they don't have the onions and the, and the fish and the melons and the cucumbers like they did in Egypt. Go read about those things. So here they are. It's just different down in Egypt. He's been placed there. He's been put there. 
He's been moved from a place of superiority to a place and position of servitude. Don't forget, he was the favored one. I believe he wore the garments because he didn't do any kind of work. And now, he's a servant. You talk about a fall. You talk about a move. You talk about somebody who is down. And get this. He is in Egypt. Canaan is the land of promise. Canaan is the land of heritage. Canaan is connected with a promise of God. Not Egypt. Egypt is the adversary. Again, all throughout Genesis and later on you'll see. Egypt is the adversary. You don't want to stay in Egypt. Most people didn't even want to go there. They were only forced there by famine. He's in Egypt. The land of the adversary. You ever felt like you just lived in the land of the adversary? I mean, where it just got so bad that you felt like the enemy was all around? Like you must have just pitched your tent right by the enemy himself. Joseph was down. But again, I say to you, you may be down. You may find yourself in the pit. You may find yourself on the road to Egypt. You may find yourself in Egypt itself. But God still has a plan. God still has a plan. God can take the most difficult of situations and use them for our good and His glory because He is the sovereign King we serve. Just two verses very quickly in chapter 39 because I want you to see this. Just want to connect a little bit and we'll come back to some of these themes later. But 39 verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Verse 2. Underline this. The Lord was with Joseph. Just kind of put it down there. Just underline it. The Lord was with Joseph. Because get this. You may be down. God's still got a plan. And God is still there. He is still there in your heart and in your life. He is still working on your behalf. You never forget that. The Lord is there. I wonder if Joseph, I wonder if Joseph really could, could get this at the time, at the moment, because it seemed like everything was going his way. He had been so separated from his dad, his family, his land. He had been separated from the culture that he understood. He had been separated from basically everything that he had known. And yet, the scripture says that the Lord was with Joseph. So in the midst of you being down, you never forget that he is there. I love the way Max Lucado said it. You will never go where God is not. 
You will never go in your life spiritually. You will never go emotionally. You will never go in a physical way where God is not. Because for the child of God, God is always with you. Remember what the New Testament says? He will never leave you nor forsake you. As a believer in Christ, when you come and accept him, when you trust with all of your heart, the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit comes in to reside within us. He comes in to reside within you. And the Holy Spirit is not one of these who checks in one day and checks out the next. He claims us. He works within us. We don't have to get more of him. We've got all of him that we would ever need. The problem sometimes, obviously, is he doesn't have all of us. We don't surrender ourselves, submit ourselves to his leadership. But you never forget it's God who is always with us, the Holy Spirit who is with us. He will never leave us, nor will he forsake us. It doesn't matter where you go. You can be in the land of Egypt. God still be there with you. Because our God is not a geographical God. He's not a territorial God. He's not a God of just Canaan. He is a God of Egypt. And for us today, he's not just a God of the United States of America. He is the God of the nations. He is the God of all of this universe. He is the God of all. And that is one of the reasons we do so much in missions. I said this just the other day. Because our God deserves the worship and the glory of all nations. He's too big and too great just for one. He needs them all. He needs every individual coming before him and worshiping him. And the Bible teaches us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That all this world will be filled with his glory. That's what we're taught. So I want you to understand that no matter how down you are, and folks, I understand, you can feel lonely. You can feel abandoned. You can feel forsaken. Even as a believer, you can have those experiences. But I want you to know, no matter what your emotions tell you, no matter what your heart tries to tell you, that you can rest upon the truth that God is always there with you. 1 John says, our hearts may condemn us, but God is greater than our hearts. When everything is saying that he's gone, you come back to his word, which is always true. And you be reminded that he is there with you. Joseph, he experienced God in the valley. So many of us experience him on the mountaintop. But don't forget, he's walking with us through the valley. Even that beloved 23rd Psalm, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. The reason I go through this is because you're there. Makes a difference. The Lord was with him. You will see it throughout Joseph's life. I'm going to come back to it because you're going to see this mention again. You're going to see it through his life. And I pray that you see it through yours. It may be in retrospect, looking back, but you can say, he was there. He was there. He was there. So you may be down, but know God's got a plan. He's there. And what he's going to do is he's going to work his ultimate 
plan and purpose for you. Again, verse 2 says, and he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. He was a successful man. Opens up all kinds of different ideas and thoughts. We may package those away and, and bring them back later of what success is and what it's going to accompany. But just at this point, the idea is God's working in his life and he is succeeding in the plan and the purpose that God has. God is working. God is showing his favor. God is there. It's hard to believe that God could work in those kind of situations. Right? I mean, really? Who could see anything good out of this? You tell me. A dysfunctional family where brothers sell their one brother, Joseph, into slavery. They go to their dad, lie. They see all the pain that he experiences. It's like they turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to what he's experiencing. How could anything good come? How could anything good come in Egypt? Something good could come because God had a plan. And God is able to take that which was meant to be evil and use it for good. I say again, that truth, you've heard me express it before because that truth has freed me in my life so, so powerfully to know that those things that look like could never be used those difficulties, those painful things, that God could take them and use them. That has freed me in my thinking and freed me in my work for the Lord to be able to encourage others because God's got an ultimate plan and purpose. It's hard to believe. But here, I be again, there is a cosmic battle. Just like I told you a few weeks ago in the book of Esther, where I saw this cosmic battle taking place. This is a cosmic battle. Max Lucado again, he said that Satan's logic was sinister and simple. Basically, he wanted to destroy the family of Abraham and thus destroy the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. What is Satan wanting to do in all of this? He's wanting to destroy the family of God. So that he can prevent the coming of the Messiah. So what does he do? He targets Jacob's boys. He puts that evil target right there upon Jacob's boys. And he comes right after them. To try to destroy them. But God was using these evil intentions. And he would use them. To bring about the actual salvation. Of God's people. You'll know the story. You'll see it. Joseph will be in the right place at the right time to provide for the family and to take care of them so that they might be saved. Because that's the way our God works. Is that he can see beforehand. I love that word provision. Provision. It means the idea that we have everything we need, that it's been provided for us, that it's been taken care of. The Latin word provision or, or really the Latin root means to see beforehand. Vision, obviously the idea to see. Pro, which is like this preposition, this addition, which means like before. To see before. 
Our God can see before. I shared with you uh, last Sunday night that um, when I was in seminary, I was coming out, and there was all this debate that was raging. I know that's been some years ago, but it was raging over this new teaching that had come out. And it wasn't in our Southern Baptist seminaries, but it was in a lot of denominational seminaries. It was called open theism. And the people would teach and they would say, well, God knows all things, but he knows all things that are knowable. The future is not knowable. Thus, God does not know the future. Remember some of you, I gave you a really technical term last Sunday night, a real theological term to describe that type of doctrine. We used it in New Orleans. Yeah, some of you said it. Baloney. Yes, baloney. Let me just tell you, folks, that is so far outside of biblical teaching. There's nowhere, I'm sorry, I don't care if you teach at a seminary, I don't care if you call yourself whatever, that is heresy before God. Because our God knows all things and he knows the future. And what is, he can see the future and he provides. He sees beforehand and he does all the necessary requirements to take care of you and to take care of me. God knew a famine was coming in the land of Israel. He knew it before it happened because he was going to permit it. He's going to allow it. So God allowed these brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. In Egypt, the breadbasket of the world it will become so that he could provide He could take care of his people. And you know what? God can see in your life too. You may be down now, but he's there with you and he has a plan. And he can see what you need even when you cannot. And he has all the resources to provide. You trust him. Listen, you trust him with your eternity. Trust him with here and now. You've trusted him with your soul, which is the most precious thing that you could give to him. You trust him with your finances. You trust him with your relationships. You trust him with your work. Because if he can save your soul from a devil's hell, if he can wash you as clean as the snow itself, he can provide for you what you need here. And he works on your behalf. Because this is what's awesome. The God who permits you to take the road to Egypt is the one who can use you while you're in Egypt. And he is the one that has the power to bring you up out of Egypt. You don't forget that story. He permits you to take the road to Egypt. But he will use you there. He's got a purpose and a plan and he'll redeem it. You may be down. You may feel like there's no hope. But God has a plan. And one of these days, listen, one of these days, he will bring you up out of Egypt. And then you will be able to truly glorify him for who he is and what he's done. You walk in today You walked into this place. You walked into the gathering. And you may be down. 
But you don't forget. God's got a plan for you. And he's going to walk with you through these days. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and we recognize the struggles we face in this fallen world. God, I pray that you would take these struggles, these difficulties, that you'd give us strength through them, that you'd show us your presence. We know you're there, Lord. Just We pray for glimpses of the manifestation of your power and presence in our lives. We just pray for that. We pray that you would fulfill your plan. God, that what is done, even our days in Egypt, would be done for our good and for your glory. We trust you with it. We yield ourselves to you. And Lord, we believe in who you are as our Savior and provider. In Jesus' name.